Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com slash newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Who takes care of caregivers? What's the definition of self-care? What does it feel like for a doctor to be a patient? Today's guest will help us explore these questions. Emily Silverman is a friend and an esteemed physician at UCSF who's using the power of storytelling to humanize her fellow healthcare workers and to open our collective eyes to the vulnerability, pain, and triumphs of caring for other human beings. In 2016, Emily created the independent medical storytelling live show and podcast called The Nocturnists. It's amazing. The goal of the show is for healthcare workers to celebrate their humanity through storytelling and to allow them to speak publicly about the struggles and joys that shape their work and their life. But The Nocturnist is more than just a show. It's a community where medical professionals can open conversations about our shared humanity and to help us all connect the dots between our mental and physical health. Emily, I'm thrilled to have you today. Thank you for having me. So, Emily, you've wanted to be a physician since you were a kid. But during your residency, you got a little disillusioned. I think you said in the middle of your residency, you experienced illness, sickness yourself, and you felt vulnerable. And it sounds like that was a really, really tough time. And you had to kind of reconceptualize what it meant to be a human and a doctor at the same time. Can you talk a little about what that was like? Yeah, sure. So you're right. I have wanted to be a doctor since I was a little girl. And medical school was hard in a lot of ways, but it was also awesome in a lot of ways. And I kind of made it through unscathed and still felt somehow like a human at the end of medical school. But for me, it was really residency where I hit that wall. And so what ended up happening was in the middle of residency, there was a scheduling blip. And somehow I was scheduled to work two 28-hour shifts in a row. So what that means for the audience is I would come to the hospital around seven in the morning, work all the way through day and night, and then leave the hospital around lunchtime the next day. And then I would go home, sleep, I guess, not sleep, and then night would fall and then maybe sleep or not sleep again. And then the next day would do that again. So it would show up at seven and then work another 28 hours. This was not really supposed to happen. Again, it was a scheduling blip, but it was legal. There was no law or rule that said that I couldn't work that. So I actually ended up sending an email to some of the leadership in the residency, just flagging this for them. And they were kind of like, oh yeah, that's annoying. Like, uh, they're like, well, if you want, you could call Jeopardy to cover like a portion of one of the shifts, or you could work both shifts and then we'll give you the day off after both. And I actually already had the day off after both. 
And I thought about doing the Jeopardy thing, but I don't know. The culture of medicine is one where there's just so much guilt and shame around summoning coverage, especially because the people who you're summoning are your friends and colleagues who are just as exhausted as you and who are probably like out going to the dentist for the first time in like a year using that day to like do that. So you don't want to ruin their like one day off. So anyway, I just decided to go ahead and work both shifts. And long story short, the next period that I had, menstrual period, was super weird. Like I felt really flu-like. I was having like spasms in my pelvis and all of this just weird stuff. And that was the beginning of a year-long odyssey of pelvic pain and bouncing from doctor to doctor and figuring out like what was going on and trying to figure out what was going on, being told that I was just stressed, which in a way was true. I was stressed, but it was more than that. And so uh, about a year out, I finally had an exploratory laparoscopic surgery. And then they found uh, endometriosis all over my pelvis, all over my bladder. I had that excised. And then even that wasn't enough. I had to go to pelvic PT for like nine months after that to get my pelvic floor to calm down and get all the muscles unclenched. And that was a super like mind body experience of understanding the relationship of involuntary muscle spasms in the pelvis with things like stress and breath. You know, it's not like your jaw, you can't just involuntarily clench it. Like you have to kind of get into the mind body to get those muscles to relax. That was a whole journey. So anyway, that was my health journey during residency. And I think by the time I emerged, I was so exhausted and I think really bitter and to an extent kind of still am, to be honest, about the fact that my medical education made me sick. I mean, sure, it could be that that would have happened to me no matter what, but I really truly feel that it's something about that two 28-hour shifts that I worked, like that that was sort of my body being like, stop, no. I wasn't going to set the boundary as the medical professional, so my body set the boundary for me and just gave the red light. And then I had to deal with all of that. So that whole process started so many different thought processes in me about like, why did this happen? Why is medical culture like this? Ostensibly, we're in the business of healing and yet we're running our own bodies into the ground and the journey continues to this day. <laughs> I can tell why you're a storyteller and why you were born to do what you do, Emily. Creating a tapestry of stories from healthcare workers around the country to weave into this beautiful, diverse quilt of humanity, which I think we forget sometimes as physicians, because a lot of us are rule following, linear thinking, problem solving, type A, if you will, people who are in medicine after a sort of stepwise climb from academic achievement to academic achievement to academic achievement without necessarily realizing what caring for other human beings entails or means and how it might affect our bodies and minds as caregivers. And so I will first say that when you're talking about your own story, I feel everything you're saying. All of those feelings are yours, but they also resonate so much with me. I mean, just briefly, when I was an intern at Johns Hopkins Hospital, my husband and I had just been married and we were broke and trying to get through the day of our crazy jobs me as an intern working back then, it was like over 100 hours a week or something like that. And I got pregnant. And back then it was like, my colleagues hadn't really heard of pregnancy, <laughs> certainly not as a resident. So the first person I told was someone on rounds, because I was so sick, I had to keep running to the bathroom to throw up. And I just told her and she immediately, you know, she was my friend, but she said, let me help you figure out how to take care of that. Like, 
get an abortion and I'm pro-choice. I just, that's not what I wanted to do. So it was just interesting that that was a f- immediate assumption, which, I, you know, she was trying to help me. But anyway, the point is that that was emblematic of the fact that this wasn't supposed to happen and that other people were going to help me kind of get through this. Like I got through my MCAT or my other hurdle to become the doctor when actually getting pregnant was something that changed my life in, in the immediate sense for the worst. It was a, the hardest time of my life in many ways, but also for the best. It kind of forced me my hand on what I wanted to do in medicine. It made me realize that I am more than just a caregiver, that I am a person as well. And I, I'd love to hear you talk more about what did it feel like to care for patients and to give that kind of empathy and energy to others while you were becoming sick yourself from the medical training process? I mean, there was an extent to which I was just mentally checked out because the endo had showered all over my bladder. My bladder went into spasm and it kind of felt like I had a UTI for a year. So if any of your listeners have ever had a UTI, imagine having that feeling for a year. It's enough to drive you mad. So I was running to the bathroom, you know, every 30 minutes, every 60 minutes, you know, feeling like I had to pee, going to pee. Sometimes pee would come out, sometimes it wouldn't. And then I would still feel like I had to pee, but then I had to like pull up my pants, go back to work and, you know, just such an uncomfortable sensation that to be perfectly honest, like I was doing my best to focus on so-and-so's renal failure and -and so-and-so's hypoxia and how do we discharge so-and-so, but I wasn't fully engaged. My mind and heart weren't in it because I was so sick. On the other hand, patients are such a wonderful escape in a way. I've been hearing a lot of stories from physicians lately about, you know, whether it's an illness or an aspect of their identity or some kind of core emotional wound that they carry around with them from their early life trauma or whatever. And they feel so self-conscious about this. They don't want their colleagues to know. They don't want their bosses to know. They don't want anyone to know. But the people who they feel judge them least, in a way, are their patients. And so I think there was some of that as well, where it was like, I felt perhaps for the first time more identified with the patients than I did with my colleagues and supervisors. And, you know, I'm sure was able to orient myself to them in a different way, especially that whole mind body thing I was talking about with learning how to relax my pelvic floor with breath. I didn't believe that that was possible until she literally like attached some electrodes to my body and then had the muscle tone of my pelvis on a graph, like a live graph in front of my eyes. And at first she thought it was broken because the muscle tone was so high. She was like, I actually don't think I've seen anyone with a tighter pelvic floor than you right now. And then she was like, okay, sit in the chair, close your eyes, take a deep breath. And I would do that. And she'd be like, open your eyes. And it didn't go to normal but it had dropped down a notch. And it actually took that data. It's so funny to say in retrospect, it took that data for me to see it, to really believe it. And I had just become so estranged from my own body. But then, you know, as I went through that journey, I think started to bring a little bit more of that approach to my patients as well. It's like, well, let's slow down for a minute. Like, let's take a breath. Things like our mood and the stories we tell ourselves and our belief systems influence us as we move forward in our healing process. And so I started to get almost like more zened out as a doctor and would kind of talk to patients in those terms. And, you know, all my East Coast friends were like, you've been in California way too long. Like, what are you meditating now? And I still struggle to meditate. It's like just excruciating for me to meditate. But yeah, I think on the one hand felt estranged, detached, distracted, and on the other hand, felt able to newly engage through a different belief system. 
I'm trying not to make this about me because the podcast <laughs> is about you. But <laughs> so when I was in medical school, I was having panic attacks and I was sent to the Harvard University biofeedback clinic. And I was like, oh, my God, this is such a pain in the ass. I'm going to try to squeeze it in between my four o'clock class and my six o'clock clinic. And this is just for the birds. And like you, they put these electrodes on me and they had me breathe. And all of a sudden, when I could see it, I could see the muscle tension and the heart rate documented, and I could see myself breathing and relaxing, and those things were tamping down. I believed it. And that, in part, informed why I'm here today, similar to you, trying to help elicit patient stories, and in your case, healthcare provider stories, to normalize the human condition to help people connect the dots between their story and their body as a map for how we figure things out. And then for yourself to understand how you as a caregiver can deliver better care by treating your mind and body in tandem. Can you talk to me, Emily, about, you know, I really believe that stories live in our bodies, that past traumas, past joys, past everything. I mean, our whole our whole lives live in this container. Can you tell me what discoveries you made about your past or your present when your pelvis was tight and you realized you had all this pain as a result of tension? Like what were the aha moments if you had any? Oh man, depends how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. I could get really California on this, really new agey if you want. Go for it. Um, I couldn't agree more about holding stories in the body. I think most of us at this point have either read or heard about the book, The Body Keeps the Score. And I don't know, I've just come to understand now. And I don't know if this is something I've learned or if this is something that I've unlearned. You know, if this was something that I like once knew and then somehow medical school screwed me up and then I had to like unlearn the screw up to get back to what is obvious, which is that the body has an intelligence, you know, it's pre-verbal, but it's profound. And if you are living up here in your mind, like you can communicate with that intelligence. It's like very kind of strange to talk about it in these terms, but it's almost like you can have conversations with yourself, with your body intelligence. You can ask your body questions and get answers. You can work with professionals to use guided imagery to understand things about your body. Like for example, once I was working with this woman and she was just asking me to kind of drop in the body and explain what I was feeling. And I was telling her that I felt like I was holding tension at three levels in my body. It was like I'd hold tension in my throat. I would hold it in my diaphragm and I would hold it in my pelvis. And it was almost like there were these three membranes that were in parallel and were just like clenched at all times. And then she would say like, okay, you know, I want you to like imagine those three membranes or whatever image you assign to it, like ask it the question, like, why are you clenching? <laughs> and then you ask the question and then you get a response. And it's like to get through the day to power through the cognitive fragmentation of getting paged constantly and trying to do things. Or I've been taught to silence and ignore and neglect my body. And you know we see this all the time with physicians who skip lunch and who don't go to the bathroom and they're standing in the OR for 12 hours and they don't even feel their full bladder anymore. Like we're just so out of our bodies that 
the body like in some ways responds. And so, yeah, I've had some of that like weird storytelling within my own body and kind of talking to myself and trying to figure out how my body works and everybody's bodies work differently. I've heard other friends tell stories like a friend of mine, she's not in medicine. She's a a poet actually. She talked about how she went to do acupuncture one time and wasn't really doing much for her. And, you know, it didn't hurt, but it wasn't really doing anything. And then the woman put a needle like in this particular area in her abdomen and she just like started crying. <laughs> and she couldn't really assign the emotion to like a particular issue or problem or, you know, thing, but it was almost like a spiritual abscess of sorts that had been like accessed and was now draining. And she was just like pouring out tears on the table. And she walked out of that appointment, like quite confused and not sure of what had happened to her. And so anyway, I think that there's so much we don't understand about the like mind-body manifold and how it all ties together. And I think now that I have this Western medical education, in some ways, I feel like I'm starting from the beginning all over again and learning about some of these other traditions and just really remaining humble at all times and recognizing that even though I have, like you, a degree from Johns Hopkins, there's just so much that we don't understand. Many of the things I talk with patients about, I didn't learn at all about in medical school. I learned through experience talking to patients and eliciting their stories and understanding how their environment and family dynamics and traumas, for example, inform their habits and seeing how that plays out. It also has come from doing a lot of deep work myself in therapy, in taking a walk with my dog and thinking about things more deeply than I would if I was running around like I am prone to do. I think what you're doing with your community is so important because there are a number of layers, as far as I can tell, to what you're doing. And I, I wonder if what you would think about the way I'm thinking about it because I'm so curious about it. But it seems like what you're doing with the Nocturnus is you're giving people a place just to be like just being in a place that is safe and where you are heard and seen and recognized is hugely important. And as a parallel to that, that's what I hope we do as physicians. We see our patients. We're not just checking boxes. We actually hear them. We look them in the eye. We understand who they are as people. Secondly, you're giving people some sense of creative energy. I think we, as you said, in your in your grand rounds at OSU, it sounds like you sort of lost your sense of self and creativity in residency. And I come from a family of artists and musicians, and I was an art history major in college. And I felt the same way in medical school and residency, where I sort of had to strip myself down to the studs of just this like machine of studying and caring for others and studying and caring for others. So you're giving people this creative outlet and space. And then it also sounds like you're trying to affect change. You're creating a movement to help people on an individual level understand themselves, maybe give themselves permission to feel things other than just exhaustion, to like open that up and figure out what is that. And then you're creating a collective movement to perhaps change the way we think about medical education or patient care, or the medical system. Like, tell me if you think that's right. And then tell me, what is this doing for you as a person? All those layers sound right. And you're correct. It is multi-layered and it can sometimes actually be really difficult to articulate. So I'm impressed with what you were able to just encapsulate there. I think this 
like many things in life, it really starts with myself. It starts with me having this experience in residency, stripping myself down to the studs and really asking myself about like, what is a doctor? Why am I a doctor? Is doctor something I wanted to do or something I wanted to be? Why did I want to do this, you know, from the time that I was a little kid? And what were my conscious motivations? What were my unconscious motivations? And really just trying to figure out how I had ended up here. And then looking around at all my peers and thinking like, oh, so many people are on a similar journey. I think medicine definitely attracts a particular type of person. Obviously, it's a really diverse field, but in general, we tend to be perfectionists, achievement-oriented. We entangle our identity with our doctorhood. And sometimes that can stem from a place of altruism, you know, and a feeling of like, I'm here on earth to help people. Sometimes that can stem from defense mechanisms. Like, I believe I'm inherently worthless, but if I can call myself doctor and people, you know, want to talk to me at cocktail parties and are impressed by me and think I'm smart, like that actually gives me a sense of security. And that's really, feels really good to me. Or other people who spend hours in the OR because they're escaping something that's going on in their own life or people who maybe give to others in a way that actually isn't healthy and in a way where maybe it would benefit them to kind of shift the lens back toward themselves and fill their own cup before they give to others. So there's so many like beautiful paradoxes and contradictions about physicians. Like there's so much grit and there's so much intelligence and there's so much passion. And there's also so much woundedness and so much insecurity. And like, there's that arrogance, insecurity paradox. There, There's just so much there. And I think one thing I've realized over the last few years is how I've just developed this radical, radical love of physicians. Maybe it's easier for me to radically love like the profession than it is for me to like radically love myself because I'm very hard on myself, but I radically love physicians and I'm kind of obsessed with them. I'm obsessed with physician origin stories, why people become physicians. I'm obsessed with their motivations, with what they get out of it, with how that journey evolves over time. And I'm also obsessed with, you know, the fact that as we go through this medical education process, like we transform. And in some ways that can be really great. We gain all these skills and all this wisdom and we kind of carry the torch of this really ancient profession and all of its tradition. We also carry, you know, the legacy of you know, horrible things that this profession has done, you know, abusive and and racist things. It's just a lot. And I think as we go through the profession, there's a lot that's lost. Like I said, the connection to the body, the art, the creativity, the the self-attunement. And what I'm seeing actually, just to zoom back out, is a really, really grim future for physicians and for healthcare. And that hurts me to see. Because like I said, I radically love doctors. I want them to thrive and, you know, to take care of patients and do a good job. So why is the house of medicine falling down? I've never really been much of like a policy wonk or anything like that, or even like an economics person. But after a while, I really had to stop looking at individuals and even at culture and just like follow the structures and follow the money and understand that like, actually, you know, the old town family doctor that's sort of a thing of the past and corporate medicine has come and gobbled up everything and vertically integrated everything. And 70% of physicians, I think it is, are employed these days compared to, 
you know, 50 years ago when a lot of us were self-employed and because we're employed, we're subject to the demands of our employer and we're pushed to see more and more patients in less and less time and to deal with all these prior auths and to deal with the electronic health record and profit, profit, profit has led to this like machine like efficiency that has really stripped the humanity out of the encounter. And so now you see physicians who are quitting the professional together, retiring early, dying by suicide, or they're just limping along. And, you know, there's a shortage of physicians. So I don't know. I think if we keep going down this path, we're going to be in really big trouble as a healthcare community. And I don't think the change is going to come from the top. There's just too much money at stake. Like even if you have a healthcare executive who like kind of cares about physician well-being and like quadruple aim, blah, 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 wants to like help at the end of the day, there's just so much money on the table that I don't think that's going to happen. So I think it's got to be a bottom up inside out process. And I think it has to start with physicians. And I think we need to awaken. We need to awaken to our body signals. We need to awaken to our desires. We need to awaken to our values. We've been so complacent and ignorant and passive as the healthcare system has imploded. So this very simple concept of like, helping a clinician find their voice and tell their story on the stage, it just hits at so many levels. Like it hits at the level of art for art's sake. It hits at the level of joy and community building and well-being and self-care. But it also hits at the level of like, if we don't find our voice, (laughs) other sinister forces in the healthcare ecosystem are going to be the ones driving the ship. And so I actually view it as sort of an emergency actually that we figure out how to speak up And some people do that through op-eds and some people do that through policy and things like that. But this very simple model of just one by one helping people tell their story, I think, is actually more powerful than it seems at first blush. I could not agree with you more, Emily. I talk a lot with patients about the importance of having agency. When people feel helpless, vulnerable, uncertain, having some sense of control over their sense of self or where their health is headed or the ability to make some change in their life. And I think that you and I will be dead before the medical system considers patients as more than the sum total of their lab results or understands their full life story and connects the dots between their mental and physical health. And so just like you are giving your community of healthcare workers a sense of place and space and safety and agency just by showing up for who they are. I think that's what you and I try to do with patients is help them at least understand what's under the hood in their own lives and their own bodies. You know, you may not be able to lose the 50 pounds, join an expensive gym, even afford the various nutrition, physical therapy modalities or whatever you need to be as well as I'd like you to be. But at a minimum... You can understand what's going on internally. You can understand what's going on externally and try to insert a sense of power and agency over your everyday life. And I have to believe, and I think you believe this too, correct me if I'm wrong, that you can make change from the top down or you can make change from the bottom up. I mean, that's the definition of grassroots activism. And so my little grassroots activism is to empower patients with simple, basic understanding of who they are, what their desires are, what their goals are, because it's not always the same as mine as their doctor, where they've been, what's going on in their mental health, physical health. And I think that where I feel powerless as a doctor is when 
A, a patient can't execute on something that I want them to do, or when the system is bucking me, like the insurance won't pay for the CAT scan they need, or they're in stuck in the ER for 12 hours and they're bleeding and I can't get anyone on the phone. And so for me to feel like I can at least empower patients like one story at a time is very helpful. I mean, that's for my own mental health, because I do think we as physicians can feel very, very helpless in this system that is a monolith. I couldn't agree more. I think that part of just taking back control, even if it feels like you have no control whatsoever, there's always a shift we can make, I think. Because think about it, if we all did that at the same time, like imagine if one day all doctors woke up and looked at their boss and said, I have 24 patients on my schedule today. I'm going to see six. (laughs) Or imagine if all patients woke up one day and, you know, looked at their surgeon and said, before you operate on me, like, I would like to know, when did you last sleep? (laughs) I've been reading this ancient Chinese book called the Tao Te Ching. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's 81 verses, very famous. And one thing I'm noticing about it is that he just keeps talking about getting right with yourself. He's like, you got to get right with yourself before you can do anything else. I don't know. I sometimes I wonder like, well, what if we all just got right with ourselves? Like would the rest of the puzzle pieces just kind of naturally fall into place in that magical way that the external world, you know, mirrors the internal world. The world, someone once said to me, she said, the world is like lava that has cooled. It's a time capsule. It was built yesterday. So when you look around, like everything you see is old. It was built years ago, but we're all like spewing lava every day. And so, you know, the lava that we spew today is going to be what our kids are looking around at in 20 years. And so it's like, well, what do we want to build? It's tough though. It's it's tough because these businesses are so powerful and they have so many dollars and they have so much lobbying ability and they have so much influence. And, and this is sort of like the age old problem, right? Of like, you know, the big powerful institution and you know, the man, I don't know. I don't know what you do about it. I think we take control where we can. I think we try to be intentional about how we treat ourselves, treat our bodies and minds. And I think there's a reason why in this day and age, not just for doctors, but for for all humans, self-care has become a buzzword. It's not a new concept, but it's having a heyday because it is something we need to do, particularly if you're caring for other people. If you're a healthcare worker, you're automatically caring for other people. But if you're a human being, you're also caring for others. You have perhaps children. You have parents. You have other people in your life who you care for. And one of the things that I talk about with patients commonly is how to care for themselves in the middle of caring for others. So if you have a a mother who's suffering from dementia and you're burnt out, exhausted, and you're not meeting your basic biological needs, how can we insert some, quote, self-care into that process of caring for another human? What does self-care mean to you? I think what it means for me is, I guess the first step is like self-knowledge. So like I said earlier, I think a lot of us have lost access to what we even want. There's so much noise out there. There's, you know, what our boss wants and what our parents want and, you know, all these things. And it's like, well, what do, what do we want? What do we really want? Like just asking oneself that question on a regular basis, I think is actually a huge first step because you'd be amazed how many weeks, months, even years can go by without somebody even like 
looking inward to ask themselves what they want. And then once you figure out what you want, giving yourself permission to want it. There's this great teacher, Kasha Urbaniak, who just has this mantra that she says over and over and over again. She says, you have no say in what you want. You have no say in what you want. You don't wake up one day and decide to want. You don't like choose a want the way that you set a goal. We don't choose what we want. Our our wants choose us. They kind of bubble up from within, from somewhere else. And we're almost more like vessels that are, you know, built to then express that want, desire, gift, talent, love, you know, whatever you want to call it, like bring that into the world, whether that means being an amazing doctor or, you know, doing something else. And I think it can be really tricky, especially for women, like how taboo it is to want things. Like I have some friends who are writers and, you know, one of them just said one day, she was like, I aspire to the highest level of literary fame and success. And she was like, and I just, I can't believe that I just said that. You know, I feel like if a man said that, people maybe wouldn't bat an eye. You know, like ambition in a man is like just default, totally normal. But for a woman to want that, like there's something about that that feels maybe like narcissistic or you should feel guilty or how dare you want that. And so I think a big part of it is like just giving yourself permission to want what you want. And then once you know what you want, go after it if you can, if you want to. That could be something big. Like, you know, actually, I want to live in Europe. And so maybe it's a big life change or maybe it's something really small, like turning to your partner and saying, you know, what would make me feel like so good is like if you could just like take out the trash like every single day or something. (laughs) That resonates. Could be something small like that. And then, you know, when you invite people to satisfy your wants, like not viewing it as a whiny or a complainy or, you know, but like an invitation and an opportunity to satisfy you. So, yeah, I think there's something about that sequence, about knowing what you want, giving yourself permission to want it, and then going after it, whether those things are big or small, like that to me, I think is self-care. I love it. It's also embedded in there, abandoning guilt, abandoning shame for having wants, which are inseparable in some ways with needs. You know, I think we learn, certainly as physicians and as women, to care for others, to put ourselves second to the person who seems more in need. But as I talk to patients who are caring for loved ones who are sometimes very ill, we all have needs and there's no kind of hierarchy among people. There's no prize for who's suffering the most. I get a lot of, you know, it's it's not even excuses from patients. It's explanations of why they can't start exercising or eat more nutritious foods or even just sit down for a minute and rest, get more sleep. And it's because they're caregiving for children or parents or spouse or partner. And I will challenge them and say, look, I don't mean to be a jerk, but I'm just asking you the question here. Where can you insert some selfishness as a good thing? Where can you find little moments of pleasure and levity? My patients know me well enough to know that they appreciate what I'm talking about. But if you said that to a total stranger, they'd be like, God, she's in la-la land. Like there's nothing pleasurable or... There's no joke to be had or laughter to be had during a tragic moment in my life where I'm caring for someone else. And I think for doctors, we are habituated and conditioned to put ourselves last and put ourselves well beneath the needs of the patient. And that's like a metaphor for how we walk through the world. And I, the harms of not caring for ourselves, thinking that self-care is selfish, really, really does harm. 
what an interesting spectrum that is like self-care or self-love or self-compassion on one end and then selfishness or self-centeredness on the other end. And like, how do you locate yourself on that spectrum? That's one I haven't figured out yet. You know, sometimes people will say to me when I when I suggest therapy, for example, that they're like, that's so self-indulgent or, you know, going for a run or taking a walk during my break from seeing my mom at the hospital feels so selfish. And you're right. Like, where do we locate ourselves? Where can we give ourselves permission to take care of ourselves while we're caring for others, which we're always doing, by the way, in some way, shape or form? Yeah, I think the examples you just gave of like, I can't go to therapy because that's too indulgent, or I can't step outside and get a breath of fresh air because that's selfish. Like, I think that that's pretty, for me, squarely in the category of self-love, and that's okay. And we can, you know, work on giving ourselves permission But we have an aging population. A lot of people are getting Alzheimer's. A lot of people are getting dementia and someone's got to take care of these people. And often it's women or, you know, people of color, immigrants, often that work goes uncompensated or undercompensated or underappreciated, invisible, um, just taken for granted as this is sort of the caregiving work of women and they pick up the slack. But then thinking about, well, what is the opportunity cost of that? Like if people are quitting their jobs and the economy is taking a hit because everybody's home caring for their elderly loved one, what does that mean for us? Like we can't just place this burden on individuals, you know, to be working, you know, two part-time jobs and have three kids and have to take care of everything on our own. Like we weren't built for that. We were built to live in communities. We were built to, you know, have resources and support and, you know, whether that's childcare or whether that's, you know, some sort of government program that funds care for the elderly, like we need to look beyond just the individual and talk about like, okay, how do we be in relationship with each other in this society and not just think about it in this atomized and individualized way, especially now that women are in the workforce, like that happened in the blink of an eye, just like generations ago, women weren't really in the workforce. So it's like really just yesterday in terms of like a longer time stretch. Like how do we deal with the fact that this layer of of work has gone away and we need to replace it with something? I don't know the answer, but maybe it could be helpful to talk to patients about it in those terms. Like there are the little moments of quiet and of stepping away and getting fresh air and taking care of oneself, but also remember that this problem is a lot larger than you and has nothing to do with you being a failure or having failed. Like these are problems that we need to look at and fix as a society. I don't know what the right answer is, but I think we need to be having those conversations. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And I think, as you said, on the individual level, what I counsel my patients, I have, I have so many patients who are women in their 40s, 50s, you know, the age at which parents are older and having problems, who are working, parenting, you know, going through menopause. It's like this nature's cruel joke that it's like you go through menopause, your kids are older, and your parents are getting sicker at the same moment, and who are burnt out and exhausted, and they they wouldn't do it any other way. It is an act of love to care for a loved one, particularly at the end of their life, but it does take a toll on our bodies, our minds. It's expensive, creates a lot of animosity among siblings and, you know, the reverb on families when someone gets sick are, you know, huge. So, you know, just going back to basics, it's about caring for ourselves the way we try to care for others. It's about giving ourselves permission to have wants and needs, even in the face of someone else needing us perhaps more than we need them. And just looking inward, I think, and taking stock of where we are and being okay with feeling sad and angry and guilty and 
grieving all at once because I think we're not one trick ponies. I think we can have a lot of feelings at once. And I think it's good to analyze those instead of just, as you said, walk around with our heads and our bodies sort of separated. Yeah. I think what you said about not being a one trick pony and being able to hold two contradicting truths at the same time is so important. Like you can love your mother with dementia and need a break from taking care of her for a week. Both can be true at the same time. Amen. Say it from the cheap seats. It's this concept of holding paradox, which I think we failed to acknowledge during the pandemic. Like we could be joyful that there's a new vaccine and sad about the millions of lives lost. We could talk about Twitter and the false dichotomies in the public square forever. But I'm just saying that on an individual level, we can feel many things at once and that's okay. Yeah. And the narratives have just become so flat. And so overly simple and just, you know, out of touch with the complexity and the messiness of real life. A hundred percent. I'm going to let you go because you have a newborn child at home. Actually, she's not newborn, right? She's been around for a little while now, right? She has. She'll be one on December 29th. So what is it like to have been a patient yourself as a physician, being pregnant, giving birth, managing the demands of being a new mom? And having your pelvis messed with, (laughs) I mean, there's nothing like having a bowling ball shoot out of your pelvis to destabilize those pelvic floor muscles, which, by the way, is a whole other subject I'd love to talk about another time because we totally deprive women the opportunity to understand their pelvic floor pre and postpartum. And and that manifests in so many ways later in life, from hip pain to sexual dysfunction to incontinence. I digress. What is it like? to be a patient in this moment of your life as a physician and as a human being? That's such a juicy one. I think by the time that I went in to be induced at 41 weeks, I had been through a lot of this journey already. So I had been out of residency for four years and had kind of had a lot of these thoughts and made a lot of these, you know, discoveries or whatever you want to call them. And so when I went into the hospital to get induced, I felt pretty good about advocating for myself, speaking up for myself, like, you know, thinking about what I wanted and asking for it and making it happen and so on and so forth. And it actually was a bit of a harrowing experience. Luckily, everybody was safe. Thank God. Thank God. But overall, even though the process was pretty protracted and obstacle laden, I felt throughout that I was able to like communicate and make decisions and be in control and have that agency. And so that was huge for me. And I think I emerged from the process, not just with a beautiful baby, but but sort of with my like agency intact. And so that was in some ways a really empowering experience. And what is it like being a new mom? I mean, when we think about moments in our lives where we feel out of control, uncertain, I mean, there's nothing like new motherhood to make you feel like everything you learned has just been thrown out the window and you're basically just like minute to minute freaking out. Minute to minute freaking out. I have undergone and I think I'm still undergoing like probably the most like identity shifts that I've ever had to deal with like in a compressed period of time. So right around the same time, I decided to step back from my full-time physician role. And so there was a bit of like a doctor ego death that happened with that and all of the baggage that comes with that. My mom who had dementia died while I was pregnant. Oh my gosh. I am so sorry to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, it was, the timing was sort of just, what was interesting about the timing was within the span of one year, 
my mom died, I had a baby and I connected with my birth mom. So I'm adopted. And oh for the first gosh. like 35 years of my life, I really didn't know that much about my birth mom. And then it was like, boom, we reconnected right after I had this baby. And so here I am a new mom, like, am I a doctor? Am I not? You know, I'm a mom. I have, I had a mom. I lost a mom. Like, you know, all of this crazy stuff. Emily, I think you need to be a storytelling podcaster. <laughs> I'm like in the crucible, like you said, like ripping yourself down to the studs and then rebuilding. Like, I kind of actually still feel like I'm in that process right now, where I'm really trying to figure out, like, why am I here? Do I want to go back to clinical medicine? If so, when and how? And if not, then what do I want to do? And like, how do I be in relationship to this beautiful baby? And, you know, how how am I conceiving of myself as like being in relationship to motherhood? So it's a lot, but, you know, you got <laughs> to just keep plowing forward and just doing your best to try to figure things out. And luckily I have a really amazing spouse who gets to hear me talk about this all the time. So. Thanks, Boaz. <laughs> oh my God, thank God. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours because you're, without knowing it, perhaps helping me. I identify with so many of the parts of your story that you're talking about. I identify with the frustration about the absence of humanity in the caring for other human beings. I totally echo your sentiment that we need to care for ourselves first and understand our own stories and bring those stories to our consciousness and to our doctors as humans, and that we have a lot of work to do individually and collectively to get ourselves healthier from the inside out. We do, and we need voices like yours for sure to be you know, bringing up these questions to patients. And uh, I mean, we're all patients, right? We're the, all the patients. Patient divide is a false dichotomy as any, but yeah, just like how do we start thinking about health in, in a different way? And I think what you've done building this community of patients and really empowering them to to access themselves in a new way, like that is so, so profound and, and they're just really lucky to have you. So to everybody listening, like, yeah, I think we can all agree more, more of Dr. Lucy McBride. I mean, more of Emily. I just want to say how lucky your audience is. I don't think there was a place for physicians and not just physicians, but healthcare providers to go to talk about their stories, to realize that they're not alone, and then to potentially get themselves healthier and make change on a more systemic level. So thank you for all you're doing for our profession. Thank you. Emily, thank you so much for coming today. It's a joy, and I can't wait to see what you're up to next. Thank you so much, Lucy. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.